Will you turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians 3? Colossians 3, as you know, over the last few months, we've been hanging out in the story of Abraham, uh, talking about the history of God's people. And so let me give you a little bit of context to where we're going to be headed this morning based on where we are. So Colossians is this letter written by a man named Paul. I'm going to call him Paul because he calls himself Paul, although we do know that this is one of the disputed letters. So we don't know for sure that this is the apostle who's introduced to us in Acts, but I'm going to call him Paul because we have a lot of Pauls in the room, and I figure if he calls himself Paul, it makes it simpler for the morning. So Paul offers a prayer in this this letter that he writes to the church in Colossae, and he says, I pray that you would be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a way worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. I'll try to talk and not set that off again. As annoying that as that is. So Paul exhorts the believers at Colossae to grow not only in their understanding, but to embody the life of the Lord Jesus in every area, standing assured and steadfast in the knowledge. Switch. The danger of this one is that I hand gesture, so I'm going to try really hard to not do that too much. So standing assured in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, that he has died and risen and ascended on high and is supreme over all things. In fact, what we read earlier this morning, this, this hymn of praise to the Lord Jesus comes from Colossians 1 that Matt read for us. And so we hear Paul's prayer that the Colossians would grow into maturity in Christ. As a part of this exhortation to a faith that is holistic, that covers every area, Paul reminds his readers of their baptism. And so that's what I want us to hear today. It's important as we explore chapter three to keep this in our minds. Like the rest of the New Testament writers, Paul makes the assumption that his readers have in fact been baptized. The New Testament knows very little, if I would say nothing, about an unbaptized believer. And so if you're in this room who hasn't been baptized, please keep that in the back of your mind as we have this conversation. Will you stand with me as we read from Colossians 3? So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever that is earthly in you your earthly nature, fornication, impurity, lust, or passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life, but now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in the image after the knowledge of its creator. 
in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if another has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these things, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. We read in this passage of an exhortation from Paul to his readers to keep their eyes up, fixed on things above, looking to what is above and to him who has gone ahead. Through a series of contrasts in verses 1 to 4, above and earthly, death and life, hidden and that which is about to be revealed, Paul exhorts his readers to seek Christ, seek him in full assurance of that what is now hidden will be revealed in glory. Fix your eyes Christward, he says. Fixing our eyes Christward is essential to living life like him. But surely in these contrasts, we need to ask a question. Um, is Paul really saying that all the things that are earthly are counter to Christ? Did God not create the earth and, and call it good? I think this next verse, verse 5, says, gives us a little bit more insight into that. It says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. All that is contrary to the exaltation of Christ in your life. And then we see a long list, fornication, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, abusive language, lies. The list goes on and on. He says, put to death, therefore, these things. I mentioned earlier that Paul's assumption is that the believers who are hearing this letter that would have been read out loud would have been baptized. And so we have to, we have to read this. Having been buried in baptism, it says in chapter 2, put to death these things. Baptism is first and foremost about receiving death. Receiving the death of Christ on our behalf and declaring his victory over death. It starts there. As much as we would love to skip to the end, it starts with death. And so here in this church, with our fancy, fancy horse trough, we practice full immersion. This image of fully being immersed in the death of Christ, enveloped in the waters, the waters that at times in the Old Testament and ancient Near East are viewed as a symbol of chaos, but also of life. Submerged in the waters, we are enveloped in the death of Christ, a full and complete picture of being buried with him. Therefore, put, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, Paul writes. For if Christ has died and you have been buried with him, should not also the very character and deeds of death be put to death? The letter to the Romans describes it this way. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. In chapter 6. 
But then earlier it also says, death no longer has dominion over our Lord Jesus. So if Christ has died, so also these things must be put to death, the very trappings of death itself in our lives. You know, I, I love the song In Christ Alone for all of its uh, richness and the beauty of that melody, but I feel like there's this one line that it gets wrong. It's hard to say that because I do love the song. But right at the end of verse two, it says, here in the death of Christ I live. And I think if we're taking these words seriously and, and the rest of the testimony of the New Testament, it really should say, here in the death of Christ, I died. Here in the death of Christ, I died. you died. You and I are called to a life that's perpetually shaped by the cross. Receiving and declaring the defeat of death, a cruciform life, as it were. A life that reflects the selfless sacrifice of the Lamb of God. If I've been buried with him in baptism, I am called to put to death those things in my life that align with death. And that's really painful. I need to be able to acknowledge that because it's not just about laying down the trappings of death so that I can pick them up another time just putting them aside for this season and picking them up again. It's about putting them to death. To death in our Lord Jesus by the power of the Spirit at work in us. For death means the end of the old self and being clothed in new life, we read in this passage. We plunge below the surface into death and then we breach the surface once again and rise to new life in order that the image of the Creator might be renewed within us, it says in verse 10. Christ, we learn as we heard earlier, is the image of this invisible God. Or as the writer of Hebrews says, he's the very radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. This is the image of the Creator that is being renewed in us. This is Christ in you, and you in him. And this should give us both endurance and hope as we sacrifice and put to death these things, because in the end, we will be renewed, and we will be revealed with him in glory. And so while the one who receives death has died, they must also receive life. A new life that day by day is being renewed after the image of Jesus that we see in the scriptures. I've always appreciated the ways that biblical writers use these everyday things to connect with us. And sometimes they may miss us completely because we live in a, what seems like a very different world. But thankfully, um, the writer to the Colossians chose clothing here. Clothing is still a part of our world, thank goodness. <laughs> and so in verse 12, we read, clothe yourselves in these things, in compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. They're called to bear with one another and forgive one another after the pattern of Christ, for the Lord has also forgiven you. And as the outer layer, as the outer layer, we read in verse 14. 
clothe yourselves in the very garment of Christ-likeness, the very core of his being and mission, love. Love that binds all of these things together from the God who is love. This is, very, this is the very ends and means of the gospel. It's, it's God and his love. This same gospel requires us to respond, yes, in the form of this cruciformed life, this ever-dying to self, a steadfast pursuit of the spirit-empowered death to the powers of this world. But you and I are also called to something called an anastiform life. Anastiform comes from the Greek uh, word for resurrection. And so the resurrection, we are called to newness of life, a life that is fixed on the face of Jesus, the resurrected King. To take his pattern and to increasingly live it out. When God's people fix their eyes on Jesus, their lives are renewed after the image of a risen Savior, a loving God who calls us to love him and love one another unto the fullness of his glory. And so it seems at least when we read this, that the cycle is complete from death to life, dying and rising. Uh, but maybe a cycle isn't actually the right word. Cycle implies circle. And if the gospel is true, which I think it is, it's not about going back to the beginning. Circles end where they begin. We are not called to return to death except in Christ's victory over it. Paul's desire for the Colossians that they would be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding, growing into the full maturity of Christ. We're sometimes tempted to look at maturity as, as a bar to hit, an achievement in which at the end of the day you get a little gold sticker that says, congratulations, you are mature. Um, but I don't think that's the picture of maturity that we have here. It's actually maturity that isn't relative to the rest of the body, necessarily. This is about maturity in Christ. It's relative to the person of Jesus. And so when we receive the death of Jesus, we begin this journey in which the cycle of sin is broken as the Holy Spirit works within us and transformed more into a coil that takes us deeper and deeper into the life of Jesus as we fix our eyes on him and continue to walk that journey. Day by day, year by year, decade by decade, we're all in this journey of putting to death those things that do not align with Christ and being clothed in newness of life. All the while assured that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again, and that our lives are mysteriously hidden with him in God. This means that as time passes, much like clothing, growth might look a little bit different. We might find old rags in the closet that need to be thrown out, or a new clean shirt that we never thought could feel so soft and comfortable as the Lord gives freedom to us. Just like our clothing, especially here, changes from season to season, so does this spiral bend and twist. 
I can take that metaphor just a little bit further. I would never expect an adult to dress like an infant, no matter how comfortable onesies are. We are still in our daily lives, called to mature deeper and deeper into Christ. And that requires asking the Lord to reveal those things to us, humbling ourselves before the Lord and his word and saying, God, please show me how to seek, how to put off, how to clothe. Lord, help me to seek, clothe me, take these things from me. An active denial of the reign of death and an active declaration of the reign of Christ. Today actually marks the convergence of two rhythms into this spiral. The first is probably quite obvious to you, uh, as we in a few moments will welcome three friends into the family of God through baptism. A beautiful embodied testimony to dying with Christ and rising with him. The start of a new journey. The start of a journey that is perhaps more intentional than it was before. But the other rhythm, which some of you may or may not know, is em emblemed in the gold and white on the cross today. For the past four months, we've been sitting in green. And as much as I love green, the switch to gold and white always gives me so much hope. Today marks the last Sunday of the church calendar. And whether you grew up in a tradition uh, that talks about the church calendar or not, uh, let me invite you into a journey uh, in macro. The church calendar over the centuries from, from the early church has been a way in which the body has tried to discern season to season, year to year, how to walk through the life of Jesus in these big rhythms, not just day to day, but season to season. Over those centuries, time itself was gradually transformed into a tool of discipleship, of spiritual formation, and renewal after the pattern of Jesus' incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, ascension, and his sending of the Spirit. Across denominational lines and various traditions, the church calendar eventually grew to span the entire year, and its practices have helped our brothers and sisters around the world to walk faithfully in the ways of Jesus. You may not know this, but in the post-war depression in the 1920s, the church felt like they needed to remember that Jesus was on the throne. They needed to remember that his kingdom will never end. And so they chose today. Today is Christ the King Sunday. A sign and a remembrance in the rhythm of our year that Jesus is on his throne. It's kind of like a New Year's Eve of sorts. A celebration at the reign of Christ has come and is coming. As we tip over into Advent next week, as we start the waiting and the watching, Advent has this dual purpose of both remembering that Jesus came in the form of a little baby, that the salvation of the world came in this tiny 
weak little infant under the most strange of circumstances, but also that he is coming again. Advent has this two-directional arrow, and so we remember the reign of Christ, even as we look ahead to the one who is above, full of hope, and declaring that he is coming again to make all things new. I can't imagine, other than Palm Sunday, when we tend to do this again, <laughs> a Sunday that would be more appropriate for baptism. A declaration of Jesus' defeat of death and rising to new life and our new life in him. And so let me pray for us as we turn our eyes to the waters, as we welcome friends into this space and we rejoice together openly and freely in the life that we have in God. Let me pray for us. Uh, Jesus, Son of God, King of kings and Lord of lords, giver of life and defeater of death, we give you praise and honor this morning for the profound work that you have done. Our entire hope is in you, Lord God. And today we give you praise. We give you praise and honor and glory that you are due, for you alone are worthy. The Lamb once slain and risen Lord that our lives would be entirely devoted and aligned with yours. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that as we see and hear these testimonies to your life and your work among your people, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that know this truth of the gospel, that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, that he's coming again, and that my life and the life of all those who turn to Jesus are hidden with him in the very presence of the Father. Lord, as we turn to these waters, may your name be praised. May you fill us anew with your spirit, with excitement and joy and assurance that you are coming again. Amen. Amen. 